two weeks away from Easter Sunday, and so just wanted to uh, remind you that uh, there are cards in your bulletin that remind you of our Easter Sunday service. We'll be at 9 and 11, regular times we'll have services here. And also we're going to do something a little different in the week leading up to Easter. We will do a Maundy Thursday service, the night in which Christ celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples on that Thursday night at 7. Uh, we will have communion here together and meditate together on the sacrifice of Christ. So I want to encourage you to uh, plan for that. If you can use the cards, there's more out there. If you can use them to invite people to join us in worship uh, during some of those Easter week activities. This morning, we're going to take a break from our study in the Gospel of John uh, with Palm Sunday next week, Easter the following week. We'll get back to John chapter 8 the following week. The message this morning is about the subject of church elders. It was born out of some recent circumstances here at Grace Bible Church. We are a church that is led by elders, and we have undergone some significant changes in leadership. Typically, the eldership here at Grace is made up of Non-staff and staff elders are kind of the only distinction that we make. Um, staff elders being what Stuart and I have the privilege and joy of doing, being able to be here full-time throughout the week and, and, and do ministry uh, in terms of church ministry here on a full-time basis. And we serve alongside men who are employed elsewhere and who dedicate tremendous amounts of time in ministry here to the, the to local church and non-staff elders. Um, I've had the pleasure of being on both sides of that, and it is a joy uh, for we as a church to have men from all walks of life who uh, bring all different strengths and um, abilities into that service and who are committed to the Lord and to his church and to the gospel and to his word. Uh, right now, we at Grace do not have any non-staff elders. That is something we fully understand the need for and the desire for, and as we've shared before, Stuart and I are working with some of the deacons. First, on a, a project, we're working on an elder handbook, um, just something that takes the biblical principles and wisdom about eldership and, and puts together um, something that gives us a good guide, a unifying guide as an elder team. Some of the impetus for that has been lessons learned from the last six or seven years here at Grace and, and striving to build an elder team that works together at the ministries that we have been called to, teaching and shepherding and protecting and overseeing the flock that God has entrusted here. What I want to do today is speak to the first topic in that elder handbook, and that is really the priority topic when the New Testament begins talking about elders, and, and that is how do we identify elders in the church? How do we see those men that God has called to be elders? What are, are some of the um, relevant sort of characteristics and traits that we should be looking for? It is not my aim in one sermon to provide a defense of eldership or a survey of church government. Um, we at Grace Bible Church have been convinced for many years that the Bible teaches that the church is to be governed by a plurality of elders, by a, a group of several elders who worship or work together and worship together as a team, uh, qualified men as described in 1 Timothy and Titus. And so my intent here is to focus pretty narrowly on how we identify them, how we see these men in our congregation, how we see those who God has called to be elders. So if you turn to Titus chapter 1, near the end of the New Testament, the little book of Titus was given by God through the Apostle Paul to Titus, who is one of his colleagues in ministry, one that um, Paul sends forth into ministry, and he's also evidently one who has been trained by Paul. Paul speaks of Titus in chapter 1, verse 4, as my true child in a common faith. And so there is some sense in which Paul has, has labored over Titus and taught 
and discipled Titus. Let me read verses 5 through 9 of Titus 1. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Titus is in Crete, and Paul starts that off by saying, this is why I left you in Crete. If you look at the map of Paul's journey, and see if I can aim it the right way, not at myself. And so in Paul's journey, he's, here's Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. We first see Crete in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. It is really considered the, the birth, if you will, of the New Testament church. Peter is preaching in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, seven weeks after the resurrection of Christ. There are Jews from all over the known world who have come to Jerusalem to be there for that feast. And Peter stands up and he speaks and he calls people to faith in Jesus Christ, to repentance from their sin, and to trust in Christ. And those people who come to faith, and we know it's thousands as described in the book of Acts, go back to their home places and they begin to share the gospel. And so presumably the church is born, church on Crete is born out of that. Acts chapter 27 then tells us about Paul's perilous journey to Rome when he is being taken as a prisoner, and, and one of the places that is, they're stopped along the way is in Crete, and there is some time spent there, so presumably, again, Paul is proclaiming the gospel, um, ministering perhaps to some of the Christians who are already there and helping to strengthen the church. Um, verse 5 indicates that there is perhaps another uh, journey to Crete somewhere along the way where he was with Titus and he leaves Titus to carry on work to help those local churches. And it says to put things in order or to finish that which is still left undone. He doesn't go into detail as to what that is that remains to be put into order, but he does give him one particular task that he highlights, and that is to appoint elders in every city. And this is one of the passages among several where we get the idea that the New Testament teaches that there are to be multiple elders. It's not to be a one-man show, but it is to be a plurality of elders because he's told that in each city where there is a local church, Titus, you are to go and to appoint elders. And to emphasize the priority of this, he then gives this description of what these men look like and these qualifications uh, that, that follow of, of why this is such a high priority for each of those local churches. Let me talk for just a moment about the title, elder, and some of the comparable titles. We see another one in this passage. He says, appoint elders in verse 5. And then in verse 7, he says, for an overseer, and he's talking about the same context, an overseer is God's steward. And so you've got two terms there, elder, overseer, and we'll see a third term in the New Testament, and that's pastor. Those three terms are all for the same office, if you will, in the local church, elder, Overseer, overseer, sometimes translated as bishop. And one of the things that we, we want to make sure we steer away from, there are some who take bishop to be sort of even a higher rank over a group of local churches. The indication here is the overseer, which is where that term comes from, that idea of bishop, is one who is in a local church. And so elder, overseer, pastor, three terms that all describe the same position of service in the local church. 
Elder, by far, the most common term in the New Testament, most common to Jewish readers in particular, because they had seen it all throughout Old Testament history, the, the position of elder. More than 140 times in the Old Testament, there's reference to some form of elder. Sometimes it's over communities, sometimes synagogues, but the idea is one who is um, called to make judgments, to apply wisdom, to give leadership and counsel uh, to those that he is serving. He is one who is accountable to God for a, a community of some kind or a synagogue of some kind. And in Ezekiel chapter 8, God calls out 70 elders of Israel through Ezekiel, and he says, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? And then he judges them for carrying on in sinful ways as if they have impunity. They're acting in ways that they don't think God even cares or sees and that they can get away with. And God is holding them accountable. As he's seeing the sin of his nation, he's saying to the elders, you have responsibility here, leadership responsibility. And so as the nation is being led down this path, it is in no small part due to their leadership. So all of that Old Testament background, and there's a ton of it going back to the, the time of Moses and all the way through the Old Testament, helps feed into when we get to the book of Acts and the churches are being started and being planted and it describes to us in Acts 14.23 that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the local churches and there's no description in Acts of what was an elder, what does that mean? And that's because the, the, the Jewish believers who were the start of that church fully understood what an elder was. They had them in their community. They understood what they were. They knew it was a leader. It was someone that God had gifted to that church in order to serve and to provide wisdom and guidance, responsible to lead and accountable to God. The term overseer that's used in verse 7 was probably more familiar to Greek culture. Uh, it had a variety of usages, that term, in terms of oversight in the community and government. It was used in military uses. Um, it is the, the word episkopos, and again, it's the idea sometimes where the bishop comes from. It, it is, the meaning is a, a supervisor of some kind. We think of our county supervisors. Well, that's, that's kind of the same sort of word there, that idea of overseer. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi in his greeting in Philippians 1.1, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So early on in the church, we are already being taught that there are essentially two offices in the church. There are overseers who are elders, as, as we see here in Titus, and then there are deacons. There are the, the, the servants who, who assist and help the elders to be able to do that ministry of the word and prayer. Um, and so it is clear that we see two terms, elder, overseer. Elder, picture of wisdom, life experience, brought into a, a caring role, a, a wisdom role, a judging role, a leading role. Overseer as one who is in a watchful place, who is sort of on the watchtower, caring for the flock by guarding the flock and protecting the flock from false teaching. If you would look back, if, if you can for just a moment, Acts chapter 20, keep your finger in Titus, and in Acts chapter 20, Paul during his travels stops in the small coastal city of Miletus, and while he's there not far from Ephesus, he sends a messenger back to Ephesus, one of the churches that he was integral in, in helping to get started, where he had preached the gospel and had helped establish elders there in Ephesus. And Acts 20, 17 says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so Paul, unable to travel to them, calls the elders to come to him, and he's 
essentially wanting to encourage them and exhort them and, and, and sit with these men who he has poured his life into, who are leading the church and protecting the church, and he is warning them of the false teaching that is to come, of the error that is there and the threats that they will face, and he wants to exhort them. And so he does that, and in Acts 20, verse 28 is another place where he's speaking now to them. He says, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we know these are elders because of verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the, el the elders. Verse 28, he now speaks of them as overseers. The Holy Spirit made you overseers. I want to come back to that point in just a moment because I, I, that's important to us in, in terms of how man becomes an overseer or an elder. But he also stresses the fact, uses another term here, and he uses the verb of it when he says, to care for. The Holy Spirit made you overseers for the purpose of caring for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church is the body of believers. It is we who are gathered in a local church, but also all believers of all time who, who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He gave his life as a ransom for sinners. He died on the cross that he might with his blood cover our sin, pay the price, the punishment for our sin, that he would redeem us to be his own and then bring us into the church. The elders then are called to care for the church of God. That verb, to care for, is the word from which we get the idea of shepherding. Your translation might say to shepherd the church of God. It, the Greek verb that's there is also in 1 Peter 5. Same kind of context where it's talking to elders. And 1 Peter 5 says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter speaking as having seen the suffering of Christ. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So elders and overseers shepherd. This is all part of their function, is to, to care for the flock. And that verb for shepherd, or to care for, is where we get the noun pastor. So when Ephesians 4.4 4 says that God gave to the church apostles and prophets and pastors or shepherds and teachers... What, what's, being, what's here in Acts 20, what's evident in 1 Peter 5, is that elder, overseer, pastor are all interchangeable. They are three terms that are all giving us different nuances, different descriptions of the same position. That's why this terminology is important. That's why I belabored this for just a moment. And that is that these are all elements of the same office. The elder the, the, the wise one with life experience who brings God's wisdom, biblical wisdom, to judging and to, to dealing with hard issues and discerning a wise course. The overseer who understands that he must courageously look over the flock and be willing to defend the flock and protect the flock and stand up for the flock. That authority is delegated to him by Jesus Christ. That's why it's important for us to remember that it says that it's the church that he bought with his blood. It is not a church that belongs to the elder. It is a church that the elder has been given a stewardship to, to have oversight over that, accountable to God. And then that term pastor, having the idea of the shepherd, feeding, nurturing, caring, using the word of God to protect and minister to the flock. It's important for that reason. It's also important that we don't make distinctions that scripture doesn't make. 
that, that we don't say, well, these are the pastors and these are the elders, as if they're two separate groups. The two are the same. All of those men who are called to the eldership are called to protect the flock, are called to feed the flock and nurture the flock and oversee the flock. And so pastor, elder, overseer, the responsibility and accountability is the same. And then finally, third, getting back to that topic of identifying elders, by seeing these nuances, these functions, it should help us to identify men who are qualified to be elders. When we see these sorts of qualities in men, when we see these kinds of ministries taking place, that should help us to recognize these men. Excuse me. Acts 20:28. 20, I mentioned to you before, and before we turn back to Titus, pay attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. God gives elders to the church. The responsibility of the local church is to identify those elders, is to recognize them. It is the belief that God has established those men in those ministries to serve in that way, and it is God then who qualifies them. It is the church that recognizes those qualifications, the men who serve in that way. So one of the ways that we identify elders is we see men who act like elders, who are courageous like elders, who lead like elders, who shepherd other believers around them, who minister God's word to people that they are caring for. They are demonstrating godly wisdom in decision-making. They are applying scripture to problems. Uh, we see them living out the eldership in a way that demonstrates that they are qualified to be. Go back to Titus 1. Let's talk through this not only are they shepherding in those ways, but Titus 1 then talks about qualifications. This then is also how we see elders, and they, they are men who are striving for these qualifications. Let me, let me give this caveat before we go through this list. If you are thinking, well, I will never be an elder, or this really doesn't concern me, I, I would urge you that what God lays out here is really a charge to all of us who profess faith in Christ in terms of what we should be pursuing. Uh, men in particular, I'm going to say just in terms of the eldership, that, that should be something, th these sorts of qualifications you are striving for as you lead your home, as you are a husband, as what, whatever God has, whatever lot in life God has called you to. But men and women as believers, the majority of the qualities that we see here are repeated all throughout the New Testament and applied to believing to the, to the church in general and saying these are the things, the qualities that should be in evidence in our lives. First one that he gives here in Titus 1.6 is if anyone is above reproach, the King James says blameless. The tendency when we see above reproach or blameless is to think, wow, that's that almost sounds like pretty close to perfect. You know, just, it's got nothing wrong. Resume is just clean as a whistle, and there's just nothing there. The term in the Greek was anaglektos. Ana meaning without. When you get anesthesia, you are then supposed to be without the sensation of pain. So ana, without. And then the, the Greek verb that's used at that place is a legal one, egkalo, which is to call out one in court, to accuse one in court. So the idea of above reproach is that you are not a person whose life is such that you would be likely to be dragged in court and accused of something, that you would in some way shame the church by how you've lived, by some accusation that sort of hovers over your head. He is the man who is above reproach, it would seem, 
first of all, by way of application, is one who doesn't need to be publicly called out and dragged in front of people to finally acknowledge his sin, sort of kicking and screaming. He should be a man who is filled with repentance, who is willing to acknowledge his sin and confess his sin and, and repent of it, but at the same time, also is not one who has a glaring accusation against him that would hold up. In other words, he has a reputation both within and without of the church that, that people expect that that life looks different. They don't have a, an accusation to hold against him because they don't stick. Above reproach is the lead quality here. It is the lead quality in the list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is repeated again as well in terms of deacons. And then in verse 7 here of Titus 1, he repeats it and says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He now gives the reason for it. Because the position you've been put in is something that God has given you to do to reflect representation of his church. You are not being made a leader as if it's your church. It is God's church. You have a, a, a care that's been given to you to watch over that church, but ultimately you are a reflection of, of God and that church. And so you must be above reproach. There should be nothing in your life that would compromise the integrity and witness of the local church. Then Paul describes what above reproach looks like, and he starts with the man's family. Starts at home. And the first thing he says there in verse 6 is, husband of one wife. I would probably sort of interpret this as one woman man is really kind of the idea of the description. This is not ruling out single men. It is not ruling out a widower. It is not even ruling out a man who was abandoned by his wife at some point. It is a character quality. And what it's saying is in terms of marital fidelity and sexual purity, this man's life is above the mark. There, there is a clear sense of moral integrity. If he is married, he treasures his wife, and it is evident that he is faithful to her. If he is a single man, there is no room to accuse him in terms of sexual purity. He guards his heart, and if he's married, he guards his marriage diligently. He is a one-woman man, leaving no room for accusation, above reproach. The, the point of this qualification and the next one about his children really goes back to if somebody looks at this man and then looks at his home life and says, oh, I'm not sure that he could be a leader in the church because his home life just seems chaotic or out of control or he doesn't seem to be present there or he doesn't seem to have any leadership Things are out of control, and, and that's why the warning is here. 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the, the instruction here is, if he's to be above reproach, he's going to start at home. He's going to start with the way he lives with his wife, in honesty and fidelity and integrity, and it's going to start with how he then manages his children. And that's where we get into the rest of verse 6, which says, his children are believers. There's a, a wide range of discussion on this verse. I, I will suggest to you that the ESV translation here is really more of an interpretation than a translation, and I'll, I'll show you why. The Greek literally says of this man, he is having or possessing children and then it uses the adjective for faith or faithful. They are children who are faithful. He is having children who are faithful. The, the verb literally means to possess something, that, that he, he's able to hold on to this. So commentator George Knight puts it this way. The implication is that Paul is talking only about children who are still rightfully under their father's authority in his home. 
the picture is he is presently having this kind of child who is described then as faithful. Now, the meaning of that adjective, faithful, trustworthy, can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. One is that it means that they are having faith as in being believers. It is not necessarily that because there are other places in the New Testament where faithful can mean being faithful, being trustworthy, reliable. And that seems to be the case here that he has children who are obeying their father, who while under his authority demonstrate submission to him. Now, I, I will just tell you, I've, I've wrestled with this verse. I brought this verse up when the elders here first asked me to consider being an elder here um, just because of my own life at this point. Um, and, and so I will tell you that my conviction on this is that the, the emphasis on this is that it's about children who are living under a father's authority that how he is managing his household at that point is reflective of where he is at in terms of his ability to lead. Their behavior should reflect submission to his leadership. They should be faithful to, to not be insubordinate to him. If they are reckless and in open rebellion, which is what he seems to describe here, if they are in open rebellion to him, then he has greater concerns to manage than becoming an elder. His focus at that point needs to be on caring for his children, first and foremost. Um, as a father managing a household, your children are a fruit of your nearest ministry. Uh, people see something about your ministry and what they are seeing in your children. And so 1 Timothy 3.4 says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Let's be clear on this. Ultimately, children are responsible for their own souls. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we do not get to bring our parents in and say, it's their fault, or, or they did good, and, and they get all the credit. We ultimately will stand before the Lord based on our own actions and what we did in response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether or not we embraced him as Savior or rejected him. And, and so from what we know about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation, the idea of judging a man for the moral and spiritual decisions of his Adult children is, I would suggest to you, at best unwise. You cannot save their souls, but while they are in your home, while they are under your authority, you should be striving and making every effort to disciple, to teach, to exhort, to encourage, to admonish, to correct, to, to show them an example of what the gospel looks like lived out. You should be ministering to them as the most immediate disciples that, that God has given you to serve and to lead in your home. Verse 7, then he moves on now. Some negatives. This is what should not be seen. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be, and then five things. Arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. Five prohibitions and I think one commentator has wisely pointed out, he says, since the office of bishop or overseer is one of authority and power, the vices named are those to which persons in such positions are tempted. And, and so that first one then is arrogant or self-willed. It's the guy who pretty much assumes he is the smartest man in the room when decision time comes. And it's just a matter of everybody else recognizing that. He's just waiting because he knows he's got the answer and everybody else is... Mm, looks on with a little bit of disdain. If they would only listen to him, they would get it right. The eldership is designed to be as a plurality, as a team, as bringing witness, uh, wisdom and, and understanding from all different portions of life 
bringing scripture to bear and then coming to, to decisions and to leadership. It's not to be arrogantly held by one man who says, I always know the way, follow me. He's not to be quick-tempered. In two aspects of this, explosive, obviously, we think of quick-tempered, we think of someone who just flies off the handle, and obviously we don't want to see somebody like that shepherding, whose reaction is just out of bounds when situations go wrong. But it's also quick-tempered in the sense of that's just sort of his go-to emotional response, and he may not have an outburst, but when things go wrong, inside he's getting angry, he's blaming someone. Somebody's at fault for this, and, and he just wants to point a finger of blame. Again, the eldership means dealing with, with difficulties and challenges. And so if your first reaction is to get angry over circumstances, then, then that's an area to grow in. He must not be a drunkard. The Greek word literally means to be continually alongside wine. This is not a prohibition against drinking alcohol, but it is a stern warning about the reality and dangers of alcohol too. That one who drinks too much or one for whom drinking has become habitual has a self-control issue in this area. And so it may be um, a question of drinking to the point that he is not in full control of his faculties or somebody who drinks on, on such a regular basis that it's become a habit. And in both of those instances, Scripture warns that that is a pattern of life that needs to be addressed. He must not be violent. Again, this is not just limited to physical outbursts, to smacking people when things go wrong, that he just reaches across the table and grabs someone by the throat, but it's also violence in the sense of words. If he's a bully with his words, if his first reaction to somebody who opposes him is something condescending or insulting, then that's, that's what fits here. That's violent. That's not helpful. That's not using your words to build one another up. And then lastly, it says he must not be greedy for gain. This is not a prohibition against wealth or the pursuit of success. What it's talking about is that the, the Greek word is shameful greed. It's the idea that, that money really drives me before everything else. I want to be prosperous, and, and I don't care what I have to step on to get there. It, it is just being driven by a sense of greed. And a guy who puts wealth over biblical principles is not fit to be an elder. So there's the five negatives. Six positives now, verse 8. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable, the word literally means love for strangers. This is another one of those that we can go to 1 Peter 4, 9 and see that as believers, we are all called to be hospitable. It's not uniquely the, the category that fits with elders. We are all to be people who love others, even people who are different from us. Very much like the story of the, the Good Samaritan that we see in the Gospel of Luke. Who is my neighbor? Well, I wouldn't ordinarily consider that person my neighbor, and yet I am to love that person, to serve that person. That's the idea of hospitable, actively concerned for the welfare of others. Lover of good. Certainly you must love God and love people, but the trait here is taking it to this outward look, this, this away from the inward self-devotion that we can easily sinfully fall into, and one who is looking outward to do good by others. And, and also lover of good has the idea of what Paul speaks about at the end of Philippians when he says, think on whatever is true and right and lovely and, and, and upstanding, upright, pure. Do you love things that God loves? Or, or do you engross yourself in, in whether it's entertainment or distractions or things that God does not describe as lovely. Uh, lover of what is good it has that sort of the affections are in the place where God would desire them to be, loving what is pure and right, noble. Next one, in the ESV says self-controlled. 
I, I think this is better translated here, sensible, sober-minded, because the self-controlled idea will be caught up in the last term here, which is disciplined. It is the idea that this, this guy has the ability to not respond rashly or in a trivial way. The guy who doesn't always feel the need to always have to speak up and, and say something immediately and be the first one with an answer or say something trivial in a serious situation. He's got that sobriety to him that he's able to see this is, this is time for restraint. It's time to, to be quiet, time to be prudent. It's the, the guy who, you know, we, we can think of this, we've all got people in our lives who often they will sit quietly when there's large discussions and when they finally speak, it's like, wow, that was really thoughtful. That, that, was, that was sort of sober-minded. That's the description of the word there. He must be upright. Same word that we get the Greek, uh, same Greek word from which we get righteous. His life is consistent in doing what God requires. If God says this is right, he believes it is right. God defines right and wrong in his word for him, not the world, saying, oh, this is okay. He believes what scripture says about what is right and wrong. He must be holy. The word holy always has the idea of distinctiveness to it, separateness. It is the sense of, of what Jesus described when he said, in the world, but not of the world. We are surrounded by an unholy world that has unholy passions, and, and, and the elder is called to be one who lives differently loves purity, shuns impurity, goes the other way from impurity, loves that which reflects a Christ-likeness. And finally, it says disciplined. I think this is kind of where the self-controlled idea fits more. The one commentator compares the word to like what we would see in a spiritual athlete, someone who, who trains and, and guards themselves in such a way as to be able to restrain, by God's grace, is able to restrain themselves. And so the word itself has the idea of strength or dominion. It is God-given strength, God-given power to reign in one's words, thoughts, actions. The ability to deny when, when I, I, the desire wants to pursue that, the ability to say, no, that is, that is not what I should do, that's not what I should say, that level of self-control. Last part, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The, the list of elder qualifications here in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, and the list of deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 are largely similar. A lot of what they say about character, about being above reproach and pursuing purity and, and, and not being um, a drunkard, not being violent, but, but being someone who is hospitable and gracious, who steers away from greed and violence and who seeks to be upright, a lot of those you see in all of these lists. Because it is the expectation that if you are recognized as serving God in the local church, that, that you should be pursuing these things. But it's this particular point in Titus 1.9 that separates out elders. It's reaffirmed in 1 Timothy 3.2 when it says he is able to teach. It's this particular description that is uniquely applied to elders. Up to this point, it's been mostly character quality, starting with above reproach, and then what above reproach looks like in the terms of the man's life. Verse 9 now speaks to the heart of his ministry as an elder. So as we're looking to identify... Here's what we look for in terms of ministry. If you remember, I said back in verse 6 that the verb there, when it talks about the father with his children, it, the verb is having or possessing children. The, the verb here in verse 9 is a form of that, but it is a more intense form when it says, he must hold 
firm. He has this, he possesses it, but he clings to it. It is that which he holds firmly to. This is the thing that that all else can go, but he is going to hold fast, and it says, to the word taught. The word as taught. He understands it to be trustworthy and reliable. That phrase, as taught, speaks to how the word of God was being transmitted in the first century. They didn't come to church and and pull out their scrolls and open up to, to books. They listened to what was taught, and they heard what was being taught to them. They heard the apostles' teaching. And so when it says the word as taught, what it's saying is he receives the word of God, and he holds it so fast to himself. He clings to it. That is what matters to him. They were bound to the word of God, and he describes it here for two chief purposes. One, to give instruction in sound doctrine. First purpose is they are they're holding to the word of God so that they can understand it, so that they can grow, and so that they can equip other believers. So they can, they can teach what sound doctrine looks like. They study God's word. They listen to the teaching of God's word. They meditate on God's word, not just for their own growth and edification, but so that they can minister that and help people understand God's word. So when we talk about the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, gave his life as a ransom for sin, that he died, that he rose again, victorious over death, that he now offers life and forgiveness because of that, that is the the essence boiled down of the gospel. That is sound doctrine. And so he clings to what is true so that he can use it in ministry to other people, to teach, to exhort, to encourage. He wants people to grow. One commentator says the function of the elder necessarily requires that he be a student of the word, willing to learn and willing to communicate his learning. Both Titus 1.9 and 1 Timothy 3.2 say able to teach or able to give instruction. And so that's a clue to us. As we are looking to identify elders, one of the ways we will do that is to see how a man handles the word of God. We will see competency in his care for the word, even some degree of skillfulness. This is not a requirement to preach. So let me just be really clear that this does not mean that you have to speak before a minimum number of people, you know, 30 people, and you have to give a three-point sermon complete with illustrations and an application, and it all has to fit together in a nice, um, everything starts with the same letter, you know, sort of outline. That's not what he's saying here. Able to instruct in sound doctrine is he is a student of the word of God. He devours it. He thinks about it. And so that when he's in situations with people, he can minister the word of God. And so that may be on a Sunday morning. It may be in a home group. It may be at home with your kids. It may be in children's ministry, youth ministry. It may be sitting and having coffee with someone and talking to them about how God's truth comes to bear on this awful situation that they're walking through and how God gives them hope through his word. The church should see a man who thinks deeply about God's word, who strives to communicate it for the benefit of others, and who edifies them. There should be some some fruit that that comes from that ministry of the word. The other purpose for clinging to the word is is described here as to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So the, the idea here is the elder's commitment to the word is such that it is growing in him a sense of discernment so that when he hears something and says, that 
doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like sound doctrine. When he sees it in a, a TV ministry or hears this latest fad that's being talked about, he goes, wait a minute, how does that square with Scripture? Because that doesn't sound right. Not only is he able by discernment then to, to catch that because he understands it's contrary to the Word of God, but then it says he has the boldness to confront it. He's able to rebuke those who contradict. I, I would submit to you this is a point where he fears God more than he fears man. And so therefore he is willing to say, no, please, this is not right. This is not consistent with the truth of God's word. And he is calling people back from it. This is pivotal. We are in a day and age when, when we have lots of sound doctrine, lots of teaching, blogs, all sorts of places where we get sound doctrine, but there is equally lots of other stuff out there that, that carries itself along as Christian. And, and the reality is the New Testament always understood that wherever there is Christianity, there will be some kind of counterfeit form that will come and proclaim itself to be sort of like Christian, that, that'll sound kind of Christian. So that's why there's warnings all over about false teaching. Paul goes from this to launch into the reality of false teaching here. Early in the church, he's already warning of somebody in Crete who's teaching false, false doctrine. Look at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I think that's helpful to us. The goal is, of the elder is not to destroy the false teacher, to embarrass and humiliate and, and ruin the false teacher. The goal is to bring him to a knowledge of the truth. The goal is to be bold and confront and call it out, but to love that individual enough to also use sound doctrine to call him back and, and, and to speak that which is true. There will always be teachings that undermine and even oppose Scripture, and they must be dealt with, not allowed to harm the local church, particularly those who are young in the faith and who are, are still finding their way. And that's where the elder must be clear about being willing to confront error and yet loving enough that his overarching aim is to bring people to a knowledge of the truth. That covers a lot of ground. And the temptation after something like that is to go, well, that's, that's almost too high of a bar. And the reality is, the way we should come away from this looking is this is God's design. And if God has designed it this way, then God is the one who is able to raise men up to do this. God is the one who is able to sufficiently supply grace and strength who is able to protect lives in order to raise men up to do this. He was sufficient in raising up leaders in Ephesus who had come out of a pagan world, most of them not old in the faith by any stretch because the church was new, and yet he was able to bring them to maturity. He was able to do it in Crete, and certainly he is doing it here in Grace Bible Church. This is a work that we ultimately have to realize that, that God is the one, as Acts 20, 28 says, through his spirit who makes elders, and he's called us to recognize them. Just a thought on, on preferences, because I think when we, when we ponder this issue, this I think is part of the discussion that ideally the eldership is a reflection of the local church. Age, ethnicity, background, our desire would be that the eldership look like the local church. So here's my, my application to you on that, is be praying for that. If God is the one ultimately who 
establishes elders, then what we need to be doing is calling out to God and asking God to, to bring men along to this position, men of every different background and walk in life, to not only bring them to faith in Christ, but to a place where they are able to teach sound doctrine and refute and, and follow through on the, the things that are here. But we also need to constantly keep this blueprint in front of us. God has not left us without question here. He's not left us without a design. And he gave it to Titus on Crete and said, here are the men that you're looking for. These are not suggestions. This is the measure. So let me, let me urge the men here, strive for these things. You may never feel like you're in a place where you can stand before people and teach. I, again, I set that aside. Strive for being hospitable, loving what is good, seeking to be upright, seeking to keep your life above reproach, seeking to put away any kind of greed or anger that is a, a, a dominating sort of issue for you. Strive by God's grace to be the kind of men that are here. If God should call you to the eldership, that's wonderful. If he doesn't, you will be a blessing to the people around you. If you are one who is, who is ministering to your wife and to your children in a Christ-like way and, and leading in the home, then, then God will bless you in that, regardless of whether you have a, a title in the local church. I had a woman ask me on the way out the door, Can I, should I be shepherding in my home? And I said, you know, as, as a mom, you've got children... You, of course, that, that, you're caring for them. You're, you're ministering to their needs. You're teaching them the word. And so, women, I, I would encourage you toward these attributes, not toward eldership because I think Scripture is pretty plain on this, that it is husband of one wife. But this should be our striving, that we would be faithful servants, that we would love the word of God, and that God would raise up in this body of believers men who would lead, shepherd, protect, oversee, and do what God has designed them to do and live above reproach. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Grace Bible Church. I thank you for your loving care of this church in, in calling people to be teachable, to love your word, to embrace it and its truth. Uh, Father, we have seen over and over again just the, the, the sense of teachable passion in, in this church, and I thank you for that. That is um, not something we take credit for. It is something that you have instilled in the hearts of, of the believers here. And so I pray, Lord, that you would um, grow us in this area. We are praying and pleading for elders. We are praying and pleading for them from all different walks of life. And so we, we ask you to raise up men devoted to your word, to teaching it, to correcting if need be, to living above reproach. Lord, would you raise up those men and cause us to see them serving and ministering. Father, if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, then we start there, Lord. I pray that you would bring them to see that this sound teaching that Scripture talks about begins and ends in the gospel, that it begins with a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for sinners and offers to them hope and forgiveness and eternal life if they will turn from their sin and trust in him. I pray, Lord, that you might save through the power of your word. And Father, make us to continue to love your word, to continue to uphold your word, to continue to long for its teaching and its authority over our doctrine and our practice. Thank you for your faithfulness to this body of believers, grace beyond measure. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.